0: Well, I got a confession for you as we begin. Um, I am 44 years old, but there are sometimes my family gets embarrassed of me when we're in public. And uh, but even though I'm 44, there are a lot of times I act like a 7-year-old or a 13-year-old, depending on the situation. And uh, one of those is an airport train. So I'm going to get you a picture on the screen here. Um, if you've been on a airport, a big enough airport, if you've only gone to Lexington and small places, you don't have trains there, right? It, but uh, the big airports you got to get from one concourse to another, you often ride a train. And every time I get on one of those trains, I've got this personal commitment to not hold on to anything, not sit down. I want to get the stance right and do everything I can to keep myself balanced and not fall over on the train. And I guess it's just the inner seven-year-old in me. And so it's my commitment. And if I'm with my family, it's a little embarrassing because there are many times where I do lose my balance. and. Luckily, I've never fallen on anybody, but most people, when they get on a train, they recognize that, hey, this train's going to move, it's going to stop, even though it's somewhat smooth, and uh, I need to hold on to something firm, I need to take a seat, uh, my luggage won't do, I can't hold on to my luggage, the carry-on will fall, if I try to grab the person next to me, that might be disastrous, or really awkward, or both at the same time. And so, you look around, and any normal human being looks for something firm to grab onto, and uh, not me. I'm trying to do it on my own and try to figure it out as we go. Uh, but why do I share that kind of silly start here? But it, because it's like this. Life in many ways is like those moving trains. Uh, it's, it's on the go. You don't necessarily know when it's going to stop. Sometimes the stops are, are more jerky than you hope for. And we really need something firm to hold on to in the midst of it and uh, our passage today as strange as it kind of might seem with all those kind of weird names in there uh, really is a window into the heart of God and a window into something about his character and his nature that is profoundly relevant to us and it's that he is unchangeable at his core and he is the firm thing we long to hold on to in the life of kind of this moving train this picture and so before we kind of jump into our passage we really, and if you, if you haven't read the uh, in numbers before, even particularly this story, we got dropped into some weird names, into a kind of a weird situation. We got to zoom out a little bit and see the context, and then we can get back in to the passage. So I want to do that briefly for you to give you uh, uh, some context where we're going. The first level I want to talk about is just the book of Numbers in general, okay, um, You hear the book of Numbers, you think it's going to be a book about Numbers, but it's really not a book about Numbers. Uh, For whatever reason, they called it the book of Numbers, but it is about the wilderness journey of the Israelites. So Moses, in this book, tells the journey of the Israelites from Mount Sinai. They had just been rescued from Egypt. They had been under oppression and slavery of the Pharaoh. And they had been rescued through a series of, of miracles, essentially, and were brought to Mount Sinai to receive some uh, the law of God. And now they were moving from Mount Sinai to the borders of the Promised Land. It was about a 40-year journey, and it was, it was long and arduous. And, and that is essentially what the book of Numbers recounts that journey. And, uh, and it's referred to as this wilderness journey because their path in the Promised Land was through the wilderness. Now, if you and I think wilderness, we think somewhere in West Virginia or eastern Kentucky. Wilderness in the biblical times was more an arid kind of place, a desert. You can see a little bit of what you think it might look like there. Um, but life was difficult for those 40 years, really difficult, really harsh circumstances, really challenging. And uh, it wasn't just the circumstances that were challenging. Uh, the people were challenging as well. They didn't handle this journey so hot. Uh, there was a lot of doubt, a lot of struggle, Uh, a lot of grumbling against God, a lot of complaining. And and on top of that, they were when they would pass through different regions, they were lured away, as we'll see throughout the Bible, um, by chasing after the gods of other people. So it was a difficult 40 years. But what's important about understanding kind of this bigger journey they were on is because when you come to the New Testament, a lot of the Old Testament foreshadows the New Testament in the same way this wilderness journey does too. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, are on a wilderness journey. So we've been rescued from the oppression of sin through the work of Jesus. right? Not Egypt, but our own sin. And we're now promised this future, free from sin forever with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth. But as comfortable as life may seem in America sometimes, we're not home yet. We're just passing through. But this journey for us, From our salvation to when Christ returns or we go meet him is a difficult journey. It's our wilderness journey. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we're moving forward, that this passage here for Israel in the Old Testament is very relevant for us today because of what Christ has come to do. So keep that in mind as we're moving forward. So that's kind of the big picture context. Second level here is these weird guys, Balak and Balaam. All right, so this story, I want to... um, if you were in our study guide, you probably went back and read a little bit of that story, but it takes place from chapters 22 to 24. And kind of want you to set this up a little bit for us. Numbers 22 through verses 1 through 8, Balak is the king of Moab. Moab is a place that they were going to have to pass through to get to the promised land. Most of the time, Israel would come to a place and say, hey, listen, will you let us pass through your land? Sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes there were wars because of it. Uh, but they got to the border borderline of the king of Moab's lands, and he was pretty threatened, felt pretty threatened and pretty fearful of this massive group of Israelites wanting to pass through. And so in his mind, what does he do? He goes to Balaam, which is kind of a a pagan prophet uh, that you would go to to curse people. I know that sounds a little strange for us, but that was pretty common in their culture. And so he went and did what he normally does is offered a lot of money uh, to get Balaam to curse this people who were on his borderlands because he didn't want them entering in and didn't want them to be successful. And uh, so that's the very beginning of the story. Then the vast majority of the story from um, 22, verse 9 through 24 through 25 is this back and forth between Balak and Balaam. And Balak really wants the Israelites to be cursed. And so he goes about trying to figure out how best to make that happen. And so he offers different kind of sacrifices. He goes and takes Balaam to these different places uh, along to see the Israelites from different angles. He offers more money, more wealth, all those kind of things. Uh, but Balaam keeps coming back from meeting with God and saying, listen, the, the pronouncement is that God will bless Israel. And so I would encourage you to go read the whole story. It's got some humorous parts. And you kind of wonder, is it, what's this Balaam character like? Is he a decent dude? Uh, Later in the New Testament and in Deuteronomy, it says he's not, but uh, you, you can get the little picture going back and forth. But overall, the story isn't about these two weird guys' names. Uh, it's about God's commitment to his people. And in this story, and we get dropped into our, our text, which is one of the oracles and one of the little situations that Balak and Balaam find themselves in, we see some a window into God's character that is profoundly relevant to every person that walked into this room today. And the window we get is that God is unchangeable at the core of who he is and his being and his commitment to his people. And so uh, what I'm hoping we gain from this time, and you'll see it on the screen, your big picture summary, is that the anchor for our journey, right, because we're on a journey, the Israelites are just on a journey, we're on a journey, is that God is not like us, that he is unchangeable. So let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, every one of us uh, have even this week, and probably even this morning have felt the instability of the train of life that we're on, uh, and we are all looking for something to grasp hold of that is firm and reliable. And so God, would you show us this morning that you are the only one worthy of our treasure and trust? You're the only firm and reliable being in this entire universe, and you have come to prove it to us in the cross. Would you help us to understand that you are the one that is the anchor for our soul? So do what we have no power to do this morning, which is to make your word come alive for us and meet us where we are. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin with this phrase that God is not like us. And 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 I want to go there because I think you and I have this got this propensity to uh, project upon God that he is like us in, in different ways. And we wouldn't say it like that, but there are oftentimes that we can look at God or view God and relate to him such a way that we relate to him like he's another person uh but not in a good way another person um in the 16th century Martin Luther kind of joked with one of his rivals that you your thoughts of God are too human and uh in one way it's helpful to think that God is relatable to us right and, and we're made in his image but in another way there's a way we can think of those two humans that's not very good and uh and people change, and we think that God might can too. And so what's tricky about that is people change in good ways as well, right? So uh, I'm sure after our first year of marriage, Noel could have gave you a whole page of ways that she would hope I would change. And hopefully at this point I've covered at least three of those uh, in the 20-something years of marriage. Uh, but what we project upon God is usually a more cynical view. People in general, and if we're, we would admit it to, is that we're pretty unreliable, we're pretty fickle, and, and we're tough to depend upon sometimes. And oftentimes, we've got trust issues with God as well. We think He's a lot like us, and we project that upon God. Yet our passage today tells us something critically important that every one of us have got to come to grips with about God, that He is not like us. And that is good news for us this morning. So let's look at it in verses 16 through 19. So the Lord met with Balaam, so he's this kind of pagan prophet uh, and he put a message in ba- Balaam's mouth and Balaam sa- and then he said, return to Balak who is the king of Moab and say what I tell you so he returned to Balak who was standing there by his burnt offering which is one of the ways he was trying to coax Balaam into changing his view of Israel or really change God and what he would do and Balak asked him what did the Lord say verse 18 Balaam proclaimed his poem Balak Get up and listen, son of Zippor. Pay attention to what I say. God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? So God is not a man. He is not like us. There's a couple ways he's not like us, and one of the one he says here is that he might lie. So the Hebrew word there has kind of layers of meaning. One of those is deceit, that God will always be truthful. He cannot lie. And so what he says is true. But it also has this kind of sense of he will not fail or disappoint or prove insufficient. And the reality is even the best of us this morning lie. We exaggerate. We exaggerate what we can do. And every one of us will find situations that we will prove insufficient to be able to come through for another person. Yet God is not like us in that way. He will always be sufficient. He will never lie or deceive. What he says, he will do. God wanted Balak to understand very clearly that he is not like man. He will not deceive. He will come through. And then we get this phrase that he might change his mind, that God is not like us in that. And so Balak thought, the right amount of money, the right sacrifices would get God to change his mind and, and Israel cursed. Why would he think that? He was a king. He was used to dealing with people, right? He was used to coming across other nations, other people, that there was the right amount of money or the right amount of manipulation or coercion that would get them to change their mind because he knows the state of us. And the gods he was used to worshiping were made in his image. So you know what? there was the right amount of sacrifices that he could use to buy them off. But God was very different. He didn't understand that he was dealing with the unchangeable nature of God. But if you're someone who've read just even a couple books earlier in the Bible, when you see this line that God doesn't change his mind, you're going to say, okay, but I've read a few parts of the Bible where it says or implies that God does change his mind in a given situation. And, uh, and there are these confusing tensions in the scriptures and I bring it up for you this morning because I want us to be a place where you can talk about these kind of things. We're not just going to tell you, Hey, listen, you just need to believe you need to wrestle with these tensions to wrestle in the body of Christ, to bring the struggles together and let's talk about them, hash them out. So I want to, I want to reference one of these situations and give you a few thoughts. Uh, those thoughts probably won't be enough if these kind of things trouble you. And so I w- it would be more of an invitation Let's dialogue more about it. Let's talk more about it. Let's figure these things out. But in leaving Egypt in Exodus 32, there was a dialogue that Moses has with God. And in that dialogue, it says that God is going to pull back from doing what he said he was going to do and bring some consequences upon the Israelites because of their actions. And, uh, and the actual phrase is he, he relents. Or some versions might say he repents or changes his mind. But yet we come across here in Numbers where it says, He's not like man. He doesn't change his mind, and so how do we reconcile those things? Well, I want to give you a couple thoughts. And again, this this uh, probably won't be enough but it puts you in the direction of where we're going. And so I think one thing we've got to recognize is that anytime you're talking about God and the scriptures are revealing something about him, it's using language that is a little bit difficult to describe God, right? And so God is ultimately incomprehensible, but yet we have been given a revelation to help us understand what he's like. And so in doing that, oftentimes the scriptures use anthropomorphic language. I wish I could say that i 'm butchering that word, but essentially use language that is human like to de- try to describe God who is not a human, right so the Bible will say he he holds you in your his arms with love or something like that God does God have arms N- no he's a spiritual being, but it's used to help us understand that, and so some of these uh, ver- words will come across are going to help us understand what's happening in that situation from a human point of view and so Um, God being unchangeable, it's important to understand, doesn't mean that he's flat in his personality or sense and doesn't have emotions. So God has emotions. He grieves when his people sins. He rejoices. These things are true about God. He has emotions. But what's different about God's emotions is they don't lead him to change his overall plan and commitment. You and I have emotions, and those emotions can rise up in us and lead us to good or bad decisions based on those emotions. But for God's emotions, they come in a context, and they're appropriate for this given situation, but in a context of his overall commitment and plan. His emotions don't lead him to change in any given circumstances. They're just appropriate to what's happening in that moment. And that's different than our emotions and how we function. And so when it says that God changes or relents in Exodus 32, it's different than how we change. One way it's different is our emotions make us change. They don't make him change. They're just appropriate to the moment in a part of his larger plan. But also, uh, when we change in any given circumstance, it's usually because we have learned some new information. That's one reason why. Well, there's no new information that God's going to learn in any given circumstances that will change how he responds. And so for the Israelites in that moment, what happened to them is they get pulled out of Egypt, rescued out of Egypt, then they make an idol and begin to worship it. Like that's what got them out of there. And so God was rightly angered an appropriate emotion to that situation. And there's in a sense that he appropriate, needs to bring wrath to them, but the scriptures say that he changes. So we just got to understand that he didn't change because he learned new information in the moment. It's not that he rescued Israel and had no idea they were going to stumble or fall. He knew that. And in his grand scheme of plan, he ordered a way that he would respond appropriately. And that's ultimately what we see here going on. And so God may respond differently in some situations than others, but it's not based on new info. God sees all and knows all, and he he responds in a right way based on that. So his purpose and commitment does not change. And so what we see in the Exodus passage, particularly, is God relating to Moses and Moses foreshadowing uh, Jesus as a mediator. And so in this moment, the people sin, and Moses is functioning as a mediator between the people. And in the bigger story of Scripture, Jesus would be that mediator between God and his people. And so rightly, the people deserve God's wrath in that moment. Moses, Moses mediates, and God changes and does not put his wrath upon them. that was a part of the bigger plan but from what we see from our perspective is a change but god's commitment wasn't changing all that's foreshadowing what would come in the gospel and so his purposes and his commitment are unchanged but how it plays out in any given circumstances will be different and so i know that was a a bit kind of heady detour there Uh, But I want to use it more as an invitation. And so if there are things you're wrestling with about this and other parts of Scripture that reference that, let's dialogue about it. Uh, I can point you to some good resources or point you to a few people in this congregation that will explain it much better than I just did. But the bigger picture is, is that God is not fickle like us and he won't change. His overarching commitment is firm and secure because his being is firm and secure. And secure. And so what this section does in Numbers is reveals that he is unchangeable. And theologians sometimes call this the immutability of God. So I want to put a definition on the screen that kind of summarizes what we've just seen. And this comes from the um, ESV study Bible. It says immutability means that God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes, and promises. Those things are unchanging about him. But this is important. Although as he acts in response to different situations, he feels emotions. So there are different situations. He's not this stoic guy. He has emotions, but he's unchanging in these bigger realities about who he is. And so then we're brought into another point in this passage here that says, has this rhetorical question, does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And this rhetorical question is meant to get you and I to start thinking about this. Huh? Does God speak like that? Does he not act? What about us? What are some reasons why we might speak and not act? And so I want to do a little thought experiment for you. I want you to think about that with me. There are hundreds of things we could say today on why we might say something but not follow through. But I want to give you a few. So they'll be up on your screen here for you. One is fear. We speak, but then we back down later because of the fear of something. So we might say we're going to do something, and when we encounter the situation, we're fearful. But God is not fearful. He's not like us. There is nothing he will encounter that is bigger than him that would lead him to fear not acting on what he said. It's good news for us this morning. New information is another thing. We speak, but as soon as we gather new information about our decision, our desires might change. And this isn't always negative. I might say, I'm going to go join you to do something this afternoon, but I find out new information that my kids have a game I'm going to go watch. And they change how I might function in that given situation. But there is no new information for God. He is not like us. There's nothing new under the sun that he doesn't know or understand. And so when it comes to him, there is nothing he will say that he can get new information that he won't choose to do. This is radical. Even in the greatest relationships we have, there is new information that can come on the table today about every single one of us that will fundamentally change how everybody in the room acts with us. Not so with God. There is no information about you that he hasn't known and doesn't know and doesn't know that you will do that will change what he, how he relates and functions with you. Another reason why is did, we didn't think it through. We speak and then when it gets time to act, we realize we didn't think it through. I mean, everyone in here probably knows there have been days or weeks that you've committed to five different things that you just have don't have the capacity to do it all. And you didn't think through it. God's not like us. He doesn't do that. He doesn't overcommit. He hasn't not thought through his grand redemptive plan for the world that includes you and I. So what he says, he will do. Another reason is maybe he's too weak or we can't deliver. We promise, but when we face the task at hand, we're just unable to deliver for whatever reason. Too tired, not capable, you name it. Yet God is not like us. There's no promise that he is too weak to deliver on. He has all the resources in the world. And he brings those to disposal to bear for his people at any given time in any given situation. And so we, we could probably list out the hundreds of different reasons why we might not be able to come through, but none of them apply to God. He is not like us. And so God led Balaam to reveal this about himself. And God preserved this in the book of Numbers for his people. Why? What did this mean for God's people in the wilderness? And when we begin to see that, we start seeing what it means for us on our wilderness journey. And so what it ultimately is going to show is that his, he has an unchangeable commitment to his people. Let's go back to our passage uh, and back into verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he might lie, or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? I have indeed, and this is Balaam speaking, received a command to bless God had given that command. And since he is blessed, I cannot change it. He considers, this is meaning God, considers no disaster for Jacob. He sees no trouble for Israel. Those are synonyms for one another. And it says, the Lord their God is with them. And there is rejoicing over the king among them. And God brought them out of Egypt. He is like the horns of a wild ox for them. There is no magic curse against Jacob, no divination against Israel. It will now be said about Jacob and Israel, what great things God has done. So the wilderness was rough. They faced tough circumstances. They faced enemies. They faced their own sin. Yet they would make it. And this, this blessing here that is that's laid out for us in terms that we don't necessarily think are a blessing, I want to explain a little bit to you, is God's reminder that he is committed to his people, and it won't change. And so we see these played out. There's no disaster for Jacob, no trouble for Israel. Jacob, Israel, are synonyms for one another. They will face challenges, yes, and if you go read through the story, they face those. But what he's saying is there in the big, grand scheme of redemptive history, his people would be preserved. That's what he's getting after there. There's no disaster which will keep them from being preserved. It says he is like the horns of a wild ox for them. Now, I don't think many of us say that in a blessing to one another today, uh, but this speaks to the people of the day would have known it. You get a herd together of wild ox, and one of them, maybe the chief one, is going to come out with his horns face outward and protect the herd. That's the natural instinct. And what's he, what's he drawing out here? As he rescued his people from Egypt, and as they're facing all these enemies, God's protective nature as a father and king comes out, he would protect his people. That's the, that's the angle he's coming out here. There's no magic curse against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Again, all this points to the reality that despite the harsh circumstances, despite the enemies, God's purposes would stand. He would come through for his peoples. The variables that they would face in the wilderness journey would not change the outcome for his people. And it wouldn't change it, but he's committed to them. That's what he's getting after here. And then we get this phrase, the Lord their God is with them. And I think what's really important to remember here is who he's talking about, because it begins to show you that this commitment isn't based on the people themselves. He's talking about that he's with them, a people who have struggled on this journey, right? Who didn't have great faith, who definitely distrusted and grumbled at God. They weren't perfect citizens on the journey, and he is committed to them. And his commitment isn't based on who they are, but his unchangeable character, who he is. And so God's people would be sustained in the wilderness. They would reach the promised land because of his unchangeable commitment. They wouldn't make it because their faith was rock solid. It wasn't. They wouldn't make it through because they were faithful to what they knew because they weren't always faithful to what they knew. They wouldn't make it because of outside help from other nations because everyone around them was enemies. They would make it because of the object of their faith. Not their faith. The object of their faith was unchangeable. And when he declared that he would bless Israel, there is no new information on the table. There is nothing else that could change that fundamental reality. And so Grace Church, this, this same message is for you and I on our journey in the wilderness as we wait for Jesus to return. And honestly, when you begin to think about this passage in light of the bigger grand story of the Bible, we have even more so reason to believe this. It's the gospel. The Israelites had promises. had promises. We've got Jesus. Look at this verse in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 1 For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, all the promises that God has made for his people in the Bible, of which we're a part of in these Israelites, spiritually his people, are sealed and proven in the person of Jesus. And I think what's important to understand here is that when God sent Jesus, he didn't send them to help a people get a little bit better. He sent them knowing full and well who you and I truly are in the darkest of moments, to rescue us from our, the oppression of our own sin and our own doing. And to bring us in the promised land, not of a location and place on this earth, but a new heaven and a new earth where he would reign fully and forever. That's the big picture of what he's doing. And Jesus Christ is the surety that that would happen. That you and I have. And so Jesus' sacrifice on the cross made possible, just to give you uh, uh, and some encouragement, to declarations about you and I, if you're in Christ, that are irrevocable. That you and I are unrighteous in every bit of who we are. If you and I were to take on a screen here every thought we've ever thought, everything we've ever done, everything we will have done in the future, we will move from this place. We will no longer show our face in central Kentucky. You will no longer communicate with anybody in this room because our our unrighteousness is that bad. But on the cross... All that we were due punishment for those sins was placed on Jesus and he fully absorbed God's wrath for them. And then he declared us righteous in his sight. So we're no longer seen as selfish, no longer seen as adulterers, no longer seen as adulterers or greedy. We're seen as perfect in the eyes of God. And that's how he relates to us. And that declaration about you is not a promise. It's been done. And it's true for you today. And it's irrevocable, irregardless of how you respond later today. That's the surety that we have. He's unchangeable. Second declaration is that you and I are not just righteous. We're not given a second chance. We're adopted into the household of God as sons and daughters. And there's nothing you or I could ever say or do to change that reality. It's been done. It's irrevocable. It's not a promise. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have made that an unchangeable reality for His people. Declared righteous, irrevocable. Adopted, irrevocable. We are in His home and in His family. It's our anchor. It's His assurance of God's unchangeable commitment to us. And for God not to be committed to His people, him to would be for him to declare that what Jesus came to do was null and void. And so what Israel had was promises, and that should be enough. But for us even more, as his people, we've got the life, death, and resurrection, which guarantees these realities. And so our anchor this morning on our wilderness journey is the unchangeable nature of God. So where do we go from here? I want to give you two points of application. The first one is this is that we would cast aside trusting in things that are changeable. So you and I, we all naturally feel the instability of that train that we're moving on in the world. And, it's, and at every stage of life, we look for different things to grasp, to hold on to, some kind of pole that will be firm for us. And some of us in this room have worked extra hard, to, in one sense, to get, keep that image going, to bubble wrap that train everywhere we can go, to hopefully, when it stops, we're just going to be cozy and comfortable. But you don't have to go far in life to know that the bubble wrap's not going to win, that ultimately life and its instability will win, and that we need something more than just trying to insulate and control our lives. And so what we find is that when life's out of control, we often try to hold on to different things. Maybe it's our, our health. Maybe it's our gifts and abilities that we have. Those feel like something firm. Or we look to our job security, or we look to our career, our field, or our 401k, that that feels like something's firm for us when life's out of control. We can double down on an election season of our political party. Maybe that is the something firm that can get me through this time that feels unstable on this train. Or we can look to the people around us, they feel firm to us. But we're constantly grasping for something firm. But the nature of everything we usually grab onto, is changeable more than others but they're all changeable this week at one of our dinners in our house we uh we had a little discussion on hebrews 13 8 which was in it's not gonna be on your screen it's just a short verse i'll say it to you uh but it's, it was in our study guide this week it says jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever and so i posed the question at our dinner table who else in all human history has been able to say that that they are the same yesterday, today, and forever? Or what else could say that? And in our discussion, no one said a person, no one said money, no one said stuff, no one, from the youngest to the oldest. We landed on two things that could remotely be said. My youngest, Bradley, said a rock. Interestingly, I mean, when we know that uh, that the oldest was quick to clarify rocks can erode and all those kinds of things, and and so the oldest said, uh, Carter said, plastic. And, you know, that's probably a really good one. Uh, I don't know if plastic erodes as much of a rock. I'll let somebody in here like Amy Farr figure that one out for us. Uh, but the point is, I mean, actually, that's probably the reason why the Old Testament uses the imagery of rock for us. Uh, because it's the most sturdy and reliable thing we can think of in this life. But at the point at the dinner table, as we looked around and thought, there's no one else that can claim that. So why would we as a people waste time playing the game of trying to hold on to things that can't claim and through the same yesterday, today, and forever? And that leads us to our second application is that we would rest in the anchor of God's unchangeable heart towards us. Grace Church, you're your circumstances will change. Many of you feel this right now. You're in some difficult days, and you've seen them shift and change. Uh, We have no idea what's going to happen to us tomorrow. Even this week, looking at the unchangeable nature of God, I found myself frustrated with the circumstances on my moving train because for some reason I was thinking they should be better than they are. And it just reminded me that the circumstances are always going to change. And the circumstances aren't good reads on whether God is committed to you in that moment. Because the reminder for us this morning is that our circumstances will change, but God's commitment will never change. It really is the firm pole that we can hold on to. Your struggles and your victories are going to change. You're going to have seasons of trusting and resting in Him on this moving train, but there are always going to be seasons, and some of you are in this right now, where that train has hit a stop, and you're pissed. You're frustrated. You're grumbling at God, and you're mad at everyone else around you for what's going on in your life. You're going to have victories and struggles. You're going to rise and fall. But God's commitment to you is not based on how you respond in a moment. And that is good news to us this morning. Your people will change around you. The people you look to for anchors will change. Some will fail you. Some will move. Most will just be unable to deliver for you. But God will never fail you. He's not going to move to a new church. He's not going to change jobs and move to a new town. He will prove sufficient in every way to hold you up on this journey till Jesus returns. God will not change in his posture towards you or I and his commitment towards us. Why? Because his nature is not such. He is not like us. He's proven it on the cross, and this is our acre, and this is the very reason why he is the greatest treasure in this world, and there is no one else worthy of our trust. And so in this wilderness journey that you and I are on, you're going to face circumstances and difficulties and people and challenges that are going to be tolerable at best at times, sometimes comfortable, but oftentimes very difficult. And we've got to find promises of God that aren't just vague promises about Him that are bedrock, blood-bought promises at the cross that we can hold on to in the moment and remind us of God's unchangeable character. Because that's our anchor on this wilderness journey. Let's pray. Father, It's uh, we'd probably be filled with a lot more anxiety if we were fully aware of how much this train we're on moves at any given moment. And that we were more aware of what this week or next month or next year, the next 10 years held for each one of us. But we do feel the instability of it and we get knocked around. And like the immature Kevin, we're like on that airplane train trying to grasp, not, not even grasping at anything, just figuring out if we can stand up on our own. But you have entered time and space to reveal your commitment to us. And in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you have proven it. And Father, I pray that you would meet us where we are today, that whatever it is that we are prone to trust to give us a sense of stability in this life and in this journey, that you would show us that there is no one more worthy of you to treasure and trust in. Would you assure us no matter of our circumstances, no matter of the people, no matter of internally what's happening inside of us, that you and your unchangeable commitment to us is the anchor we need. Would you meet us there? And if there's those in the room that have never known you like this, that all they've done on this train is just grasp and they've never found anything that is worthy of holding on to, would you show them this morning that you have proven your love and your worth in Christ? Would they turn to you?